Welcome to Beyond the Practice Room, the podcast that bridges the gap between music and medicine. We are your hosts, Kaylee Miller and Janice Ying. Each episode, we will explore a different topic in musicians' health and wellness. Today, we have a wonderful guest on the podcast, cellist, writer, musician advocate, Janet Horvath. She was Minnesota Orchestra's associate principal cello from 1980 to 2012, and in that time, she did tireless advocacy for musicians' health and wellness. Her book, Playing Less Hurt, was one of the first comprehensive resources for musician injuries, receiving multiple awards and accolades along the way. Janet has also been an advocate for hearing care, and her essay on hyperacusis was published in The Atlantic in 2015. She recently completed an MFA in creative writing and has a new book coming out in April 2021. I don't know what year it is anymore. Thank you so much for joining us, Janet. Oh, thanks for having me here. Yeah, thank you so much. So the first question I have is actually not your biography, which usually people ask you about, but my question is, how has the field of performing arts medicine changed over the last, I guess, 40 or 50 years of your life from studenthood to, to where we are now? Wow, it's really <laughs> changed from the dinosaur age of when I was a student, um, when most people said, how can it hurt to play? Im- mm-hmm. Implying that playing mm-hmm. is all fun and games and it couldn't possibly be physically taxing, not, not like <laughs> right. football or ditch digging or anything like that. Um, and so most medical professionals also looked at it that way that, you know, we can't see anything on standard tests. So you can't possibly be hurting and you musicians really you're you're so sensitive and maybe even a little hysterical um and I don't fault the doctor so much now that I did then because most of our issues are soft tissue injuries Mm -hmm. and these don't typically show up on standard medical tests um and then on the other hand musicians didn't want to be equated with being jocks, um, which we imagined that if if you have to think about warming up and cooling down and all those terms that athletes use, um, that's the antithesis to making music. And so there there were these two kind of battlegrounds going on um, that long ago. Um, But a lot of people were injured when I was at Bloomington, Indiana University, um, Indiana University School of Music. And uh, we called it Bloomingtonitis, in fact. Um, and we were very careful about speaking about it. It was taboo. Hmm. And I'm really very pleased that over the years, the Performing Arts Medicine Association has not only formed, but really blossomed. So it's a really fantastic resource for people to consult, get names of physicians who specialize in performing arts medicine, which is now uh, an established medical field, which 
you know, that's new. There was a textbook uh, written so that those who might want to go into this field as a specialist, as a physician, can. Um, there are a lot of resources online now, and a lot of people like you two who are advocating and uh, very interested in helping performing artists uh, play with the least amount of physical effort. And that's really different than it used to be. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even in the last 10 years for myself as a physical therapist, not to, not to even talk about my prior life as a musician, um, that has even come a long way as well. Um, I, I think you mentioned something interesting about, you know, when you go to physicians that there aren't medical tests um, that could kind of pick up um, these types of injuries that musicians typically experience. And I, I definitely would say that um, with with more knowledge now, I think people are more gravitating towards like the functional medicine side um, where you stress the tissue in how your patient or your client is reporting where they're feeling the pain. Because a lot of these tests are researched in ways that are, you know, you have to do it very systematically in order to prove that this test is valid. Um, mm-hmm. And now people are kind of expanding their their breadth of knowledge or kind of exploring the bounds of how do you actually stress these tissues. So for musicians, it's like, okay, well, you know, this is, these are endurance athletes or, you know, you, you very eloquently talked about the debate between athletes and uh, musicians and how musicians didn't want to be identified as such. Um, but I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, so you, you talked about um, your time at Indiana. So in that, in that experience, so I know it was taboo, but kind of amongst your peers, what were some of the conversations, if any, did you have about what you were all experiencing um, in terms of your injuries? Well, things have changed a lot from those days. But in those days, um, there were very few practice rooms available for the large group of performing musicians who are in the performance degree program. And so what? I didn't want to lose my practice room. So I just stayed there all day, you know. Um, One didn't think about taking breaks and, you know, just watching the repertoire you're playing so that you're not stressing one particular muscle throughout two two hours of your playing. We... I wanted to be the best Starker student who ever lived. And so I, I <laughs> practiced and I thought I had to, you know, maintain a certain level, obviously. And in those days too, if when, when it did start to hurt my arm, I basically ignored it. I basically thought, okay, no pain, no gain, mm-hmm. which a lot of people at the time in exercise also felt that way that, oh, I'm going to play through the pain and I'm going to be better musician, right? right? I didn't equate the pain as a signal that I'm playing with too much tension or intensity or too long, too hard. <laughs> um, and um, 
our identities are so wrapped up in our instruments. It is who we are. Yeah. Right. So to admit that we did something wrong, quote unquote wrong, to hurt ourselves was not only a stain on our playing and our ability as a musician, but as, as people. So I, I wanted to disappear. I didn't want to admit to anybody initially that I was having an issue. Mm-hmm. And then when I couldn't turn a doorknob or wash my hair or hold my hands up, um, you know, or hold a cafeteria tray, um, I was lost and went from one doctor to the other and, you know, had a lot of different doctors say, oh, well, you should try something else. And, you know, that was the worst possible thing anyone could say to me, right? So I basically um, took six months off, three months off, and then Starker had been on on a concert tour during that time. And when he came back, I think he hid his horror quite well, <laughs> and he <laughs> started me over from scratch to eliminate any possible tension, to learn to play with total ease, use my body well, and I'm very grateful now for that experience. Obviously, that was the beginning of my um, advocacy of learning how I'm a very small person. I'm 4'11". I have tiny hands. People used to say, oh you know, you're too small to play the cello. Um, So uh, we did not discuss these things amongst ourselves. Mm. Unlike today, where I think more young people are being more open about it and aware. Yeah. Uh, One of the things I also just want to comment on is that the amount of courage it probably took you to tell Starker that you had... I mean, that's like, that's kind of a thing to me. And to make it even better is that he knew how to help you. Because I feel like right. so many people of the generation of teachers that is now past, people that were, I don't know, born in like 1900 to 1930, they didn't have those tools. So it's amazing mm-hmm. that A, you had the courage to say that because I can't imagine that. I'm in my 30s and I've only known him as this, you know, huge monolith. <laughs> right. Um, but then that he had the tools to calmly help you rebuild. And then you were able to re-jump back into his studio classes where you were learning like a ginormous piece every two weeks and playing in front oh, of other people. Every two days, not every oh my God. Days. <laughs> Like well, that's I, a story I, in and of itself. Okay, first of all, I I agree with you. I think your dates are a little off because I wasn't born <laughs> by 1930. But no, no, no. Um, I meant Sharker. No, no. I, I know, I know, I know. But <laughs> but I still think um, people of my generation s- still didn't get any injury prevention training. Right. So that I often hear from from teachers right. who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s who don't know what to do if they have a student that presents themselves with pain. Yeah. So right. that's still an issue. We yeah. still need education, quite a bit of it, not only yeah. for the students. Um, I think, thinking back, I and I've said this often, I had the perfect teacher for, for my, mm. my issue because Sharker was so brilliant 
and he was so able to analyze everybody's different physique and yeah. help you find the the place where you could use your your weight and your body weight and your ease and play with you know this great flow of of weight rather than pressure and tension and bite and all these adjectives that we use in our um jargon that imply um tension and pressure which is what we don't want how how else can your music flow from your soul from your inner life out to the audience through your instrument if you're blocking it somehow with your right with your body so i i feel fortunate that it was starker i'm i was terrified of course but um, (laughs) today i think there's still you know young people are still reticent to tell their teachers if they're hurting they they are afraid of placing blame um on the teacher perhaps or the teacher might perceive it as as blame so um it's it's a subject to discuss that if if the teacher starts out with saying you know we're going to warm up in every lesson so it becomes a habit we're going to take a break every you know 20 minutes so that it becomes a habit mm-hmm. we're going to ad- address ease of playing to produce a beautiful sound that's the goal and follow your ears and breathe and move that's fluid in ways that will really um, transcend your body. Actually, um, so these are really important issues that that the teacher has to set up right from the beginning with their lessons. Yeah, totally. Right. I mean, it's about creating a culture within your studio first. Right. um, And making sure that they know that it's okay to do these things. I think oftentimes, um, you know, when you either start a new teacher and you're and they have a reputation. Oh, let's see. So, um, you know, they have a reputation of being tough or demanding a lot of their students. Oftentimes that kind of sets a precedent for whether a student is willing or not to, um, you know, come forward and have these uncomfortable discussions with a teacher. So, um, I, I, I want to fast forward a little bit. So, you know, you, you, have sp- you had spent quite a bit of time um, with the Minnesota Orchestra. Um, <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about um, your experiences with your the, the culture of injury and pain during your time there? And we'll kind of expand from there. <laughs> well, the orchestral situation can be very, very taxing. And I, I, um, you know, I was in the orchestra for 32 years. I was in the Indianapolis Symphony two years before that. So it's quite a long time. Um, And on top of that, just like most of my colleagues, we teach, we (laughs) play chamber music. I played a lot of concertos and traveled to play solos. Um, So it was constant, which is a problem. So the amount of playing is a problem. Um, the orchestral setting 
doesn't lend itself to being too malleable without some strong advocacy. And things have changed a lot. But, uh, you know, initially, when I first got published my book, I would give my book to every conductor that came through, Um, you know, because they need an education too. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we have very demand, there are a lot of risk factors. We have very demanding performance schedules, which include touring and recording in, in the, you know, the major orchestras. We have difficult repertoire that's not balanced from week to week. So one week will be, you know, Stravinsky, Rite of Spring. The next week will be Ein Heldenleben. The next week will be a huge Mahler symphony. Um, all the big splashy numbers that are terribly taxing and, and long, to put it mildly, too. Um, we have very high standards today, um, much higher than I think it used to be. We have a lack of control. And I like to... to Um, compare it to driving a car. So the conductor is in the driver's seat. When you're in the driver's seat in a car, you know that you're going to stop suddenly or make a hard right or hard hard left. And it's the passenger that goes through the windshield or is jostled, you know. Yeah. And so in an orchestra, it's the conductor that will stop or start suddenly or make you hold a position at the end of a movement or lurch into you know the beginning without you even having had a chance to get your instrument up. Um, so you don't have control over the tempo, over the stops and starts, over the loudness or softness that the conductor demands of you, of where you're sitting, of the lighting, of the, you know, being bombarded by sound from maybe you're sitting in front of the, you know, trumpets. So so we have a total lack of control that um, at home, when we are in control, our movements can be much more fluid because we we can take the tempo we are comfortable with, we can stop and start when we want to, um, we can get up and go to the bathroom or take a drink of water, none of which you can do on stage in an orchestra setting. There's also very inadequate preparation. So it's not unusual. You know, typically our schedule is such that there was four four rehearsals, sometimes five for a concert, and you played the concerts that week. When I started, we had four concerts a week, then it went down to three. Um, but every week was different music. Well, but in the summer, right. when we had festivals, often we would play difficult programs with only one rehearsal. Right. And then you feel like you're walking on eggshells. So you're much more hypervigilant, um, <laughs> hyper aware of, you know, not, not falling into the cracks, coming in a rest or... Um, you know, you don't know what's coming up in the music necessarily, so your motions are much more jerky. Um, of course, there's performance anxiety involved too, and we have a physical vulnerability that's built into just how many repetitions there are in some music, like. Of course, Tchaikovsky, everybody knows, but Sibelius, in fact, is a worse offender. And I, you know, I'm the counting lady. I count the number of repetitions that people are, you know, 
Oh, yeah, your Schubert, your Schubert <laughs> 9 numbers. I remember, so I, Schubert 9 is one of my least favorite to play. Just yes, really. Sheer, sheer yep. repetition. And I remember you, it's in your book, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that makes sense because the, the last <laughs> movement feels like I am dying because you play it so many times over and over again. So, yes. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, there still are demanding or thoughtless conductors who want you to go all out in rehearsal as well as concert. You do all the repeats in rehearsal, um, you know, and, and um, you know, there's never a moment, very few conductors will say, hey, take it easy, let's mark the rehearsal like, Singers are allowed to mm-hmm. mark the rehearsal, meaning play uh, or sing less because they're mm-hmm. saving their voice. But that is totally not the culture in an orchestra. Um, yeah. And then, you know, just the general problem of playing too much, playing too intensely, playing for too long with too much repetition and too much force. And that's a recipe for uh, disaster. Yeah. You alluded a little bit to the schedule. Do you think that the kind of programming uh, for or- for Minnesota Orchestra in specific, um, or in particular, did that change over your time there, meaning that it got better, or you think it got worse, or more concerts or less concerts? I'm always kind of curious as to how things have changed in the last three or four decades. I don't really think they've changed. I- <laughs> That's a good except, answer. <laughs> except for now. Except for now, of course. Yeah. Now, now it, it may, I just hope, I pray for the future of our art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm right. very concerned. But I think it's really, the, po- the, the positive from this could be that people are playing in smaller groups. They're mm-hmm. really searching for different types of repertoire to play. Mm-hmm. That's always a good thing. They're looking for different ways to reach out to the community, you know, playing in trucks and playing, uh, you know, in boats and, in, you know, drive-in concerts. I mean, you know, we're reaching, we can reach more people than we have been in the concert hall. You know, that's a whole other story, of course. Sure. But but a big orchestra is interested in playing the big repertoire. Right. And, and many conductors are really most interested in the big splashy works, like I mentioned earlier, um, and not doing so much of, you know, Mozart symphonies or Haydn symphonies or even um, things like Strauss, you know, smaller works like Bourgeois Gentilhomme that don't use the full complement all the time. Um, and that may be changing, that that there's a mix, although there are chamber orchestras that specialize in this repertoire and they're better at it than a big orchestra. And we're great at playing, you know, a big uh, Mahler work. But we can't do that. We can't continue to do that 52-week seasons a year. And yeah. also, right, we have to throw in the nasty subject of our ears and saving our ears too. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely on the list for today too. (laughs) Right. Yeah. One of the things I would ask, because you uh, allude to it really well, what do you wish that conductors 
understood about these issues? Like you, you clearly gave them your book. I don't know how they responded, but what do you wish that they had in their awareness of how they lead rehearsals and schedule time? Well, I wish that programming would be balanced week to week mm-hmm. better than it is than it had been, uh, you know, who knows what's going to happen now, but, um, right. But also within the rehearsals, uh, I don't know if the, uh, the layman necessarily knows that typically we'll play the hard music. So say there's a, a premiere of something or a really difficult contemporary work, and we'll have a whole day on that. Mm-hmm. And, or, you know, there's maybe a, a reduced symphony on that program, like a Mozart symphony, for example, and they'll leave it to the very end, like the last 45 minutes of the rehearsal of the day, like at three o'clock or 2.45, so that the back um, chair players can just leave. They can get to go home early. But that means that the rest of the orchestra plays the loudest stuff all day instead of having two hours on the hard piece and throwing in a half hour on the Mozart and then having lunch and then coming back to the contemporary piece, you know, and then coming back to the Mozart or something, you know, to break up not only the amount of sound that's going on throughout the day, but also the stress on the, on the body, because obviously you use different muscle groups for Mozart than you would for Strauss or Mahler or or Stravinsky. Yeah. So, so balancing programs would be really important. Um, You know, understanding that fatigue is the first sign of, you know, an issue and that there need to be enough break times. And very often the break times are minimal, especially in a, not professional orchestra. So in student orchestras, that really concerns me because sometimes they'll go long, way longer than a professional orchestra does, like three yeah. hours or three and a half hours with yeah. only a 10 or 15 minute break. And that's mm-hmm. not good enough. That's not enough. Um, that needs to be lobbied for. And, yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a huge point. That, and I think it's been really hard to get that to change. I, I know my time in various summer festivals and even New World, like the concept of regulating your break time and your rehearsals, there's very little that you can do for yourself, which is right. really unfortunate. Right, right, right. So I, I, I'm always curious about this because I have definitely helped many, many musicians um, during my time get back to playing. But um, are there any kind of safeguards that orchestras have now or did have? I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm just going to ask it anyways. Um, to If a musician, let's just say in a large orchestra, had an injury, it, are there any things that the organization as an orchestra has in place to help facilitate that return? Well, I'm really pleased to report that the Minnesota Orchestra does have that in their contract. Great. It's it's called work hardening, which Mm -hmm. is a term taken from industry where occupational therapists use the actual work site 
to be part of their therapy to get them back to the ability to to perform their job. So um, in this orchestral situation, it was a really thorny problem to work out because the health insurance would say, okay, you're not playing, so we pay your health insurance. The orchestra would say, we can only hire full-time musicians. There's no such thing as a part-time musician um, mm-hmm. and we can't pay them. So the question was, who takes responsibility if the, or if the musician is allowed to come back for a little bit hmm. initially? So the way we worked it out was that the therapy, the, the musician would start with sick leave and that person would go to X number of physical therapy sessions or, um, you know, other modalities that might help that person. And the doctor would supervise that. Once the person has gone through their ther- their physical therapy, then they would start at their instruments at home. And I advocate very strongly to go slowly, very slowly. <laughs> um, we forget how physical it is. Yep. Um, and I start with 10 minutes. And it seems like very little, but it's much more important to go gradually and start with 10 minutes, then maybe 10 minutes twice a day, then maybe 10 minutes three times a day over a couple weeks before mm-hmm. you increase the length of time to 15 minutes and then 20 minutes. So once you've reached that mark of two hours, which most rehearsals might be, you know, two hours, maybe, you know, we have a rule that you can only go an hour and a half without a break. That's plenty. You know, at home, we should always take 10 minutes per hour of break time. Um, That way your muscles have um, are the ability to recover 90% of their ability. And um, most people can easily lose themselves in that wonderful Brahms Sonata that they're working on. And, you know, hey, two hours have gone by. So we're disciplined people. We shouldn't allow that to happen. So I alluded to the driving the car analogy. So even if you've got yourself up to an hour and a half or two hours with a break, um, it's not the same when you get to the orchestra. So... Mm -hmm. The doctor would, um, at that point, say, okay, this person is ready for work hardening, which means that, and the doctor would say, the work hardening is going to be four weeks, six weeks, two weeks, whatever that doctor deems necessary. The person sits at the back. The orchestra continues to hire a substitute, and the health insurance continues to pay. Um, so that's how the money part of it was worked out. Mm-hmm. The orchestra member sits at the back and plays initially a few minutes, whatever they can manage. Then they graduate to one piece. Then maybe the following two weeks later, they'll graduate to a half a program until the doctor says, okay, I can sign off now. You can play a whole program. And then the orchestra will not hire a substitute and pay the musician full time and the insurance stops. So that's how it works. 
and it works really, really well. Yep. Um, and I, I would really be hopeful that the rest of the country adopts a similar plan because if you jump right back into, even after a vacation, I mean, I see people coming after summer <laughs> vacation and jump into a double rehearsal on a, you know, mm-hmm. on a Beethoven ninth or something. Um, <laughs> right. And then they hurt themselves, you know? Yeah. So, you yeah. know, I think those are all good points. And I'm, I'm kind of surprised that more orchestras haven't followed suit. Um, clearly you made, you know, great progress in your time there and had a, an orchestra that was interested and willing to, to change some of their policies. Um, but with that, I wanted to shift a little bit and talk about the aging musician and just looking at how the body is really affected differently when you're 27 and then when you're 50 with the same schedule and the same routine and how maybe people in their, you know, even 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s need to start being, I'd say, more considerate or more aware of these things than maybe when they were a teenager or in their 20s. Well, that's definitely true. Um you know, when you were 27, I can remember when I was 27, I could play incredible hours and a concerto and party all night and um, be okay. I might be tired, but I could still play. <laughs> right. Um, but as you age, and especially if you do that kind of brutal schedule for a really long time, um these injuries are cumulative. Mm -hmm. So at some point, if you continue to brutalize your body, you can hit the wall. We call it hitting the wall. And it's, you reach your tissue tolerance. And that varies from person to person. It depends how big you are, how strong you are, how flexible you are. Um, But your tissue tolerance, you reach a limit. And we don't want to get there because then injuries can become chronic of just one thing after the other. So as we age, we have to be aware that we become stiffer. We have less fluid in our joints. Um, There's more wear and tear in um, ligaments, tendons, bones, everything. Cartilage has worn down. And so we need to be able to just take that into our stride and know that we need to warm up more. We have to be more mindful when we're practicing of taking more breaks and playing less loud and playing slower. Um, A lot of my colleagues have practiced a whole lot more as they got older, (laughs) just to try to maintain their skills and their level and feeling threatened by the young hotshots coming in and the orchestra, you know, um, mm-hmm. and it's easy to feel that way of, of feeling like, Oh, I, I can't be slipping here. Um, so if one modifies our approach as far as just being more mindful of our physical ability of, of warming up more and cooling down more and taking more breaks, then I think um, we have a longer longevity. But, you know, if you don't take care of yourself when you're in your 30s and you just play everything in sight and never say no, then you can set yourself up for issues dec- you know, a decade or two later. Yeah. Right. 
I mean, I think you, you, you've said it, all of that very beautifully. I mean, because I agree a hundred percent, just because you're 20, 30 years old and not feeling pain doesn't give you the green light to go and do everything under the sun. Like the care that you should be taking needs to start early on in their career. And I tell this to musicians all the time. It's like, if you take care of yourself now, then you're going to prolong your um, prolong your ability to play longer. It'll, it'll prolong <clears throat> your career much, right. much greater. Um, right. You know, I had um, a shoulder physical therapist tell me that if musicians would just do this one move, which is taking a foam roller, which is that hard round um, dance foam. You can get them in psychedelic colors. Mine's blue. Um, <laughs> you know, you can li- you should lie on it, supporting your head and supporting your tailbone. So it's along your spine and then opening your arms directly to the side. Some people get so tight in their pectorals that they can't even reach the floor and it's only, you know, three, four inches from the floor. If so, then your arms shouldn't be exactly at shoulder height, but lower so that you open the pectoral muscles and stretch. Just doing that would save shoulders tremendously along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I agree. We both have videos of that in our, our various websites, but at, I don't know what you call it, Janice. I always called it the snow angels on the foam roller, but you right. might have different names. Yeah. I, foam roll angels. There, There's a lot of different names, but um, I mean, if you look at how our society is now, we're all like locked in front of a computer or, I mean, musicians should do it. I agree a hundred percent. It's a great exercise and it's a very important stretch. But I would argue that everyone who sits for a long time, whether it be for work or texting or just sitting and watching TV on the couch, we're all in that same position. So it's a very important stretch just to do across the board for people, even if they're not musicians. But that's just my bias. Well, that's absolutely true. I agree totally. But also, I advocate that those musicians who can stand should alternate between sitting and standing to practice. Um, You know, sadly, a cellist can't, but a cellist then (laughs) needs to stand up sometimes um, and also rotate your knees towards each other so that the hip joint um, gets some lubrication because we sit with our legs apart all the time, but we never turn them inward, right? Um, similarly, it's very important. This is the most important thing for posture. And that is that your knees should descend from your hips. So you need to find a chair height Mm -hmm. that, I mean, there are tall, tall musicians who will take any old folding chair and they feel like their knees are in their face. And that turns your back into a C curve, which is the worst possible thing for your spine. So, so if you, if you can sit on a chair, a higher chair, where your knees descend from your hips, you can maintain the lumbar curve in your back that is natural when you're when you're standing. Um, I often ask people to stand against a wall with their shoulders again, you know, touching the wall with their head touching the wall to feel this lumbar curve, and then to mime playing like 
to kind of squat a little bit and mime their playing and see if they feel like they typically torque their whole torso, turn left or right. Cellists, you know, will favor the A string and turn towards right. their left. Um, to to avoid doing that, that everything needs to be in neutral, your torso facing forward, your chin tucked in, but your head up like your puppet on the string, um, shoulders down, facing forward, um, you know, your arms descending in an unbroken line from your back. The, the posture, your approach to your instrument is, is essential, and that needs to be maintained from day one. Day one, you know, if you are careful about that, and we, don't, we tend to get tired and lazy sometimes, but I'm so comfortable sitting like that that I sit like that at the dinner table. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm always in that position. Um, so let me ask you this. I, I'm curious because, you know, seating is very important because people will, people oftentimes are at the mercy of the yeah. chairs that are in the orchestra or performance halls and whatnot. So, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned what people can do if they're tall. Now, I, you, you mentioned that you're kind of a little shorter in stature, as am I. So what do you recommend for people who are shorter who don't have the option of what I, I usually say is like bringing the floor back up to you so that your feet are touching the floor? But, you know, what, what are some things that short people do, for lack of a better term? Well, I think, first of all, it's worse to have a too low chair than a high chair. Yes, I agree. That's for sure. Um, I always sit, I mean, cellists have to, I sit on two inches of chair. I mean, I sit right on the edge, but Mm -hmm. that means that I don't ever have any lumbar support. Right. So there are chairs now, um, that are being made that are not as deep, um, Mm -hmm. or that can be adjusted to the depth so that, um, but even so that's not enough for cellists. I, Mm -hmm. I actually designed a chair that, that was you know, just a few inches deep, but Winger Company, W-E-N-G-E-R, Winger Corporation is pretty much the international chair manufacturer for orchestral chairs. Mm-hmm. And many years ago, the orchestra, Minnesota Orchestra decided, okay, our chairs are so worn out, we have to get new chairs. And they asked me about it. Um, they said, oh, darn, you know, the these musicians, we cannot get them to agree on a chair. It's just really difficult. And I said, well, I bet I can get all the cellists to agree on a chair. Oh, no, <laughs> no, you can't, you know? And of course I did. Um, and that was when the light bulb went on that it depends on what instrument you play. Sure. <laughs> that right, yeah. Very much so, as well as how tall you are and how long your legs are and everything. So a short person can definitely go online or a tall person. And there are many different kinds of cushions that are available that there are some really dense uh, wedge-shaped cushions to sit on that will tilt your pelvis a little forward, which is ideal for a cellist. Um, There are cello cushions. These uh, resources are in my book. Um, There are all kinds of lumbar cushions that you can put on your chair that will allow you at least in the rests (laughs) to be able to sit back and um, not have your feet dangle if you're short 
and be able to get lumbar support. Um, so that's, there are a lot of different manufacturing companies right now that um, there's Concert Design, there's Techno in Australia. These companies are now specifically designing chairs for musicians that are adjustable in height, in depth, um, adjusting the lumbar support. So, so it's getting better. It's really Great. getting better. Yeah. Except in school, in high schools, in, right. in, in oh, yeah. orchestras, yeah. which is a real, pro- yeah. Yep. yeah. Then, chair. then they have to get, get their parents or get themselves online and order some of these cushions. Right. Yeah. No, it's tough. What was the kind of culture and protocol for hearing protection when you started with the orchestra in your 80s, or in the 80s, not in your 80s? In the- <laughs> I feel <laughs> like, yeah, I feel like it though. Um. No. <laughs> I mean, lately, you know, you've had your amazing essay uh, published in the Atlantic a few years ago and talking more openly about hearing protection, but to my, you know, limited knowledge, I feel like no one talked about it until like 15 years ago at best. At best. No, (laughs) no. We, we came out of the closet about the physical injuries that can happen. Mm -hmm. And we know that they're cumulative and we know that the sooner that we get some help and be aware of what we might've done to cause it, the quicker we recover and the more likely it is that we have a full recovery. Sadly, hearing injuries are also cumulative, but they're permanent. Mm -hmm. So I will reiterate that a hearing injury is permanent and it's something that we have to be desperately aware of to not jeopardize our hearing. Yeah. And, and it's really a taboo subject until very, very recently. Um, People would be embarrassed to use earplugs, um, would be, you know, trying to pretend that they're using their instrument to plug one of their ears if they're sitting right in front of the piccolo or something. Um, But because of some of the very public injuries that have occurred, more orchestras are, are aware of it. Um, in my day, they wanted you to sit as close as possible um, to each other. We had very, we had a very reverberant stage, mm-hmm. um, and of course, we would never stop. There, yeah. were, there was nowhere in the hall, nowhere. I don't think there is still. There might be in a room now, where a silent room where you can escape from the sound for a few moments. Um, at least, let alone if you're preparing for a big, you know, solo and you need, you know, to focus, um, you need some quiet time. Yeah. Um, so there have been some very uh, public injuries, not only mine, yeah. that have brought the world's attention and the music world's attention to the issues of your hearing um, jeopardizing your hearing on a daily basis. And we're not only talking about hearing loss and hearing loss is a a tragedy, but you can have a hearing aid and, um, that they're not perfect. I'm not saying that they're very expensive, but at least, um, that can, you know, continue your hearing ability. Mm -hmm. But 
the injuries that are sustained, um, tinnitus, which is the so-called ringing in the ears, mm -hmm. but some people experience roaring like a jet plane in their heads. And those people want to kill themselves and have, mm -hmm. there have been suicides because yeah. of course it's the worst when it's quiet at night when you're trying to sleep and you, so you can't sleep and it's terribly distracting. And the only thing that can be done for serious tinnitus is uh, masking devices, white noise, um, trying to lower your stress levels and anxiety and trying to ignore it. Um, and it's a very difficult thing to live with. And millions of young people already have tinnitus because of iPods and how loud everything is in, mm -hmm. in, the, in society. Hyperacusis, which is the injury that I sustained, is kind of the opposite. It's the total breakdown of tolerance to all sound. So it's when the brain decides that everything seems to be turned up on high. And hyperacusis is painful. It feels like a knife pirouetting in your ear. And the pain radiates down your neck, into your face, teeth, tongue, jaw, head, every, everywhere. Um, and you become so afraid of sound that you want to become a hermit. And in, when I sustained my injury, that's what people did. So there was very little research and um, even the, the ear doctors, the specialists knew very little about the injury. It's much more prevalent today, which is not a good thing, but at least there's more awareness of, of the injury and how horrific it can be because you can't live your life. I mean, you can't tolerate um, I couldn't tolerate my own voice, <laughs> let alone go out in the street and tolerate traffic or children laughing or microwave beeps or any beeps. Um, and everything beeps today, of course. Um, so, so it's an, these injuries you don't want to have, and most of them are noise induced injuries mm -hmm. and they can happen after one episode of, you know, a sudden um, explosive uh, um, crash of a symbols or a, an event, which was in in my case, that's what happened. It wasn't cumulative, but it can be cumulative. Um, and sometimes they go together, and sometimes a third injury accompanies them too. And it's called Meniere's disease, mm -hmm. which is horrendous vertigo. Yep. So. There's so many reasons for us to protect our ears, and yet I think it's the, you know, sound pollution is the last pollution that we have yet to address because everything is so loud. Restaurants and, you know, di discos, let alone discos, but also um, um, even stores where you go in and you want to buy a pair of jeans and the music's blasting. Um <laughs> So we really need to protect our hearing. And that means practicing in spaces that aren't too echoey. Like I know we sound like hyphets in the bathroom, but that's really <laughs> bad for your ears. Um, in a classroom that has concrete walls, it's really important to have wall art, uh, rugs, um, drapery, carpeting, whatever, mm -hmm. to absorb some of the sound. 
um, and to practice softer. I mean, you'll be more efficient with your practicing. Um, you'll figure out issues much better. Um, and of course, there's only there's a limit to how loud you can go. So you need to perfect your smaller, your you know, softer pianissimos anyway um, in your playing. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a big it's a big concern today because everything is so loud. Absolutely. With that in mind, I'm just curious what like movement or exercise or self-care practices have you found the most helpful just in general? Um, cuz I feel like you're a movement agnostic. You just suggest lots of great things, which I think is the best way to be. But what do you right. what do you like in your own body for movement and self-care? I love yoga. I have my 45-minute routine that I do every morning, and there are I don't sleep so well anymore. So if I didn't do it, I would not be able to get through the day. I mean, it mm. lubricates everything. It calms me. You know, it's a meditative, but I do a lot of different stretches to get, you know, the creaks out. And I, I've, I've done it for my whole life, so... There were times when we would have a rehearsal in the morning and a concert at night, and I'd have a big solo, and I'd be, you know, bent out of shape about the solo, and I'd I'd race home to just do some yoga, which which helped me. Yeah. Um, and um, swimming is great for people who like to swim. I would avoid um, volleyball. <laughs> um, watch your fingers, um, and and also. Weight training isn't isn't a good idea for musicians because we don't want to build up bulk. We want to be flexible. So the exercises that help you keep lubricated and flexible are the best for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in terms of um, weight training, I think there's different forms of weight training as well. So um, I think. A right. lot of musicians are fearful of weight training because that in, in their minds, it means, okay, I'm going to get a bar and bumper weights and I'm going to do snatches and, you know, all, all those things. And weight training can mean a lot of different things. And uh, I, I always encourage musicians to look at kind of muscle endurance training because that's what we do. That's, that's how we play. That's what we use to play our instruments. Right. Um, we do absolutely need to have flexibility, um, uh, of course. Um, but you know, as you as you as you've talked about, is like training up. You need to. I, I think that you need to also be mindful and think about how long do you need to practice for and train those muscles in that manner, which you've already talked about very eloquently. Well, actually, I I've worked quite a bit with therabands. And mm -hmm. those, that's a safe way to do um, strengthening. So I'm not yeah. against strengthening. I think that's ex extremely important right. um, to keep up your, your strength, but um, to do it safely, obviously. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Safety is the number one thing, of course. Yeah. So with that in mind, um, how would you like to see the field of music and musician health change in the years to come? What do you still want to see happen? I definitely want to see classes in schools and some yes. 
some schools are um, implementing some kind of class. And I really feel like uh, Alexander Technique, although it's really great, is not enough, you know, and some people are feeling like they're they're doing a great thing by introducing um, Alexander Technique. Um, I would love to see uh, anatomy class where specialists come in. I've designed a couple classes that I, that you know I've tried to get into some various schools um, where you know you get different specialists coming in and talking like yourselves coming in and talking about um, the kinds of little, Things you can do, I call them my on-stage tricks, but there are moves that you can make that are unobtrusive, that keep you lubricated, like even just one shoulder roll, you know, that's not obtrusive on stage. Um, any little wiggling that you can do will keep the tension from building up. But um, sadly, I think college is too late for these classes. So somehow if we need to educate the young people in high school before they become injured, there are so many cases of um, percentages of students that are already injured when when they get to college. Um, So younger and younger people are playing extremely well and playing extremely difficult repertoire and they're hurting themselves at younger ages. So I really wish for classes and experts to be called upon for younger people. Yeah, I I, I agree with that 100%. And I do agree that, um, you know, college may be, I wouldn't say it's too late because I don't, I don't, I, I want to be careful. It's like, it's never too late is not quite what I'm trying to say, but there, it needs to start somewhere. And if you right. think about it, um, people who are in college are in the prime mental space to absorb knowledge and to accept knowledge. And these people are going are the future of music who are either going to be working in orchestras, working in chamber, and or teaching. And as we've talked about before in the past, teachers are kind of where it needs to be, right? right. So I think that it is very important, especially just starting it out while they're still early in their careers and they haven't fallen into their old habits. They don't have old habits. I mean, they might just because most musicians, once they get to the college age, have already been playing for at least a decade, right. at least. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's, I, I would say it's maybe not quite too late, but if th- we let it go beyond college, then the ship is kind of sale then it's up to the musician independently to go back and learn all these things um so I I I am very encouraged to see um that a lot of schools are implementing uh, education in terms of injury health and prevention hearing health and prevention um into their curriculums can it be more a hundred percent um but I think we've come a long way um, in the last decade and maybe even a little bit before that. Um, so I'm very encouraged about that. Yeah. And, and in- I guess, Oh, sorry. I don't want to interrupt sorry. you. I was just going to say along what we, you did already say, which I think is really important is just 
if we can get more education to youth orchestras and high schools and because maybe those folks don't become professional musicians, but they're also still at risk. Um, and also the educators, if we can get more, you know, middle beginning high school educators on board and just creating that culture of awareness in their studios and their classrooms and their ensembles, that's also a really, a really important place to start. Yeah. You just said something important and that is that there are a lot of amateur musicians who are (laughs) avid players who love it. Um, it's yep. the most important part of their lives. <laughs> and um, many of them haven't had as good background in technique and in playing. And so they tend to hurt themselves too. And yeah. I've, I, mm-hmm. I feel like we really need to, to turn our attention also to, to them, um, the young people that are learning and love music, but will major in math or science or something else, uh, but will want to continue playing. Yeah, sure. Um, That's important. And one other thing that we haven't talked about when we were talking about aging, most athletes are done in their 30s. Uh, most, most athletic, (laughs) you know, if you're a dancer and you get to your forties, you're amazing. Um, um, but our careers are ridiculously long. We start very young and Mm -hmm. we become quite accomplished by our mid teens or late teens, Mm -hmm. if not, you know, college. And we're still hopefully playing at our peak in our fifties. Um, and beyond. And of course, there are many examples of outstanding musicians who played into their 70s and 80s, um, who must have done something right all, the, all along. So the longevity of our career has to be taken into account that yeah. in, if we want to be able to ki- continue, we need to have good habits from the beginning. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's super important. So in the last few years, you, in addition to having a huge career anyways, but you also just managed to get an MFA in creative writing, and you've been a more prolific writer in the last few years, and you have a new book coming out this April. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that book and, uh, of course, you know what it's about and when it's coming out. Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so when I had to leave the orchestra because of my injury ear injury I had to do something quiet right and I of course I'm not wasn't just an old lady that you know wants to dabble in writing I'd been writing all my life and wrote playing less heard already so I decided that I needed to tell the story of my parents and I decided the best place would be to get my MFA because I needed to be around other writers and get the encouragement, mm-hmm. which was, it was wonderful. So my parents were Holocaust survivors from Budapest, Hungary, and they never talked about it. My mm-hmm. father was a brilliant cellist. He was um, in the Toronto Symphony for 38 years. I was born in Toronto. My mother was a wonderful pianist and a great teacher of little, little teeny kids. Um, And it hovered, the subject hovered over us all the time, but no one spoke about it. 
They wanted to protect us. They didn't want us to have to suffer their trauma. But of course, it oozed into our genes. Yeah. And yeah. when my father was, he was 87, and um, it was the last year of his life, my father loved to talk shop. And we uh, talked a lot about all the famous conductors he'd played with, uh, everybody from Sir Thomas Beecham to Barbaroli to Toscanini. I mean, all the, all the famous uh, conductors. But I'd never asked him this question, and we were driving to another doctor's appointment on a wretched January day, and it was sleeting, and I thought, okay, what am I going to talk about? Because my father could be really um, impatient and fly off the handle, and who knew that he had PSD? Uh, PSD. Um, and so uh, I'm driving, I said, well, Dad, did you ever play with Leonard Bernstein? You know, he's one of my idols, and I, I just never asked him that question. And suddenly, it was as if he passed out. His eyes went into the back of his head. His hand went to the palm. Of, you know, he put his palm on his cheek. And I thought, oh, my gosh, should I pull over? Like, what is going on? What did I ask? And then he came to in a few minutes and said, yes. It was a very hot day. He was just a kid and he played Rhapsody in Blue on the piano and it was in the Jewish orchestra in the displaced persons camps in Germany. Wow. And and I'm like, oh my God, what have I just heard? And then before I could even get my wits about me of like, okay, how did you get to Germany? Why were you there? Was my mother there? Did, how did you get a cello? I, you know, what year was this? Uh, any of that he shook his head and the memory's gone or he was reluctant to discuss it anymore. So, so what I found out was that my father played, he didn't play two, he played two concerts with Leonard Bernstein in 1948 in Lundsberg, um, part of Bavaria near Munich in Germany. And it was uh, the largest displaced persons camp in the English, in the American zone at the time, 5,000 people. And what I then raced to the Google and found Leonard Bernstein's site, and there it is, um, I discovered that there was a printed program and then found out that my father didn't play two concerts. He played 200 concerts. <gasps> They wow. Were, and I thought a hundred member orchestra, you know, I like my orchestra, orchestra. It was 17 musicians who were bussed twice a week all over Bavaria to play morale boosting concerts for displaced persons in camps waiting for paperwork, waiting for loved news of loved ones, if there was any, um, oh waiting for paperwork to leave uh, Europe. Oh and and um, so this, that's how the story starts. And to say that I started finding out, it, it was the, the uh, galvanizing clue that led my father to finally tell me his testimony and tell me what happened. And I made incredible discoveries along the way, uh, also getting my mother's story. And then in the end believe it or not, in 2018, the city of Landsberg decided they needed to do a commemorative program 
a reconciliatory program. It happened to coincide with Leonard Bernstein's 100th birthday. And they invited me to play solo with their school orchestra in the very spot my father played with Leonard Bernstein to wow. the day, oh my 70 years later. Aww. So that's yeah. in a nutshell, the story, but it's a, it's a, it's like a mystery story that I uncover <laughs> throughout. And I go back to my, my youth and I go back to understanding some of mm. the ways that I'm, I was formed as I grew up yeah. with this. Wow, what, and so, what an amazing journey, though, for for you. But it's also, you know, so important that this history is recorded yeah. and shared with everyone. So thank you for taking the time to, you know, explore this area um, and sharing that with all of us. Yeah. I think it's incredible. Thanks. It's so it's called the cello still sings. And um, a general, generational story of the Holocaust and the transformative power of music. And mm -hmm. it's being published April 8th, 2021. So we're getting close. Yeah. Um, oh, and I'm, I'm excited. It's, it's really my legacy. Wow. I, I'm ex I, I can't. I can't wait to read. Yeah, I'm getting um, a little teary over here. So in my I, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's such an amazing story and this kind of compelling pivot to becoming a genealogist writer is, is also really fascinating and, and worth a whole podcast in and of itself. But sure. um, for people who want to find you on the internet and who want to find your book, where is the best way or best, where's your website, I think is what I'm asking. <laughs> yeah, it's janethorvath.com. That's going to be the place that I have many other um podcasts and uh, videos of other injury prevention suggestions and um, there's lots of information as well as the information about where and when the book is coming out and where to get it yeah fantastic great well thank you so much for speaking yes. to us and being so generous with your time and yeah and thank you, Janet, for all the work that you've done over the last few decades. You know, I, I don't, I, I honestly believe this in that I don't think performing arts medicine would be where it is without your help. So no, really, thank you so much. Yeah, thank thank you. you. That's very flattering. Thank you. So that's our show. Special thanks to Abby Swidler for composition and performance. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others. Maybe write us a review. You can find us at beyondthepracticeroompodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>